Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sex, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. A scorching sun rose over Mansfield, Texas on December 3rd, 1995. Winter break was just weeks away and most of the local high school students were nestled snugly in their beds. But 18-year-old David Graham and his fiancee, 17-year-old Diane Zamora, were wide awake. Visions of a blood-caked windshield, a smoking rifle, and the lifeless body of 15-year-old Adrian Jones played over and over in their heads. David didn't think he'd ever sleep again. He wondered when the police would come for him. He imagined a life behind bars, or worse, capital punishment. But his true concern was for Diane. He loved her. She had her whole life ahead of her and dreamt of graduating from the Naval Academy. David decided if it came to it, he'd take the fall for her. He'd do anything for her. Diane, on the other hand, was more concerned for herself. She wasn't proud of what she'd done, but she was relieved AJ was gone. Now that she and David shared such a dark secret, she was confident he'd never stray again. But not everyone could keep a secret. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we discussed high school sweethearts Diane Zamora and David Graham. When David confessed to Diane that he'd cheated on her with a fellow student, Adrian Jones, she was furious. As revenge, Diane convinced David to help her kill AJ in cold blood. This week, we'll see how the teens almost got away with murder and the messy aftermath of the police investigation. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The death of 15-year-old track star Adrian Jones on December 4th, 1995, devastated her community. Capable, brilliant, and outgoing, AJ's future was tragically cut short. But in the mid-90s, the Dallas, Texas area was rife with crime. Drive-by shootings, robberies, and violent killings made headlines daily. Sadly, the loss of a teenager didn't shock the authorities the way it used to. Detectives Dennis Clay, Dennis Meyer, and Police Chief Brad Geary were all assigned to AJ's case. They'd seen it all before and, perhaps overconfident, assumed they'd find their killer before the turn of the new year. In the days following AJ's death, 
The detectives observed the Mansfield High School students from a distance. In the school lot, they watched over 2,000 teenagers shuffle in and out of the building each morning. Any one of them could have been the murderer they were looking for. To narrow things down, Clay, Meyer, and Geary started by questioning the teachers and counselors. They seized on every clue they could find, collecting the names of any students who were known for stepping out of line. Their list included kids who had been regulars in detention, rebelled against authority, or repeatedly caused minor trouble. Next, they turned to the students themselves for information. They wanted to know if AJ had ever bullied anyone or if she'd been involved in any petty high school drama. None of it bore any fruit. To make matters worse, AJ's autopsy results were yet another dead end. There wasn't any hard evidence left at the scene that could be used to identify the killer. The lack of progress on the investigation frustrated locals. Mansfield High's principal was especially concerned his students might be at risk. He took it upon himself to do more than just cooperate with the police. Not only did he set up a classroom for questioning, he also reserved a space for grieving students to meet with counselors. On the school's grounds, he had a tree planted in AJ's honor. After her death, her classmates circled the memorial tree and chanted, unity, strength, courage. Times were tough for the teens. For many, AJ's passing was their first experience with death. It was tragic, tense, and terrifying that her killer was still at large, possibly even still going to the same school. Students wore colorful ribbons to keep AJ's memory alive. Soon after her body was discovered, visitors placed a cross fashioned from tree branches and red ribbon at the site. Friends and strangers alike held vigil at the makeshift monument. AJ's parents, of course, were more heartbroken than anyone. Her mother, Linda Jones, drove to the scene of the crime every day in the hope of finding some clue to unlock the mystery. She would have done anything to identify her daughter's murderer. Back at home, along with AJ's father, Bill, Linda fed the authorities as much intel as she could. She told the police that on December 3rd, the evening of AJ's disappearance, they'd given her permission to talk on the phone after 10 p.m. Her new boyfriend, Tracy Smith, called in late. He'd gone on a getaway that weekend and wanted to tell AJ all about it. Her folks didn't know much about Tracy, but they knew he went to another school. He and AJ met on the job at the Golden Fried Chicken restaurant. Linda remembered her daughter giggling and flirting on the phone that night. She also remembered hearing AJ ask Tracy to hold on at one point because someone else was calling on the other line. That moment seemed significant because it was the only time AJ acted out of the ordinary. When she clicked over to the other call, her voice dropped low. She whispered short, quick answers to whoever had phoned. Then, after just a moment, she switched back over to Tracy and resumed their conversation at full volume. When Linda asked her daughter who'd interrupted her chat with Tracy, AJ told her it was David from Cross Country. The following day at school, Detectives interviewed around 30 students, including 18-year-old David Graham. 
he was the only David on the track team who could have called AJ the night she vanished. But the story didn't quite make sense. David's name wasn't in AJ's phone book. No one who was close with AJ mentioned David at all. One of her best friends, Tracy Bumpus, said AJ and she shared their deepest, darkest secrets. But Tracy had never heard AJ mention David at all. For his part, David kept a low profile. In the weeks after AJ's death, he played the role of an innocent student flawlessly. He took care not to change his behavior in any noticeable way. At school, he remained conscientious and made sure not to rock the boat. His eyes were wet with tears at AJ's memorial service. He seemed as shocked as anyone else that she met such a violent and unexpected end. When David was called upon to speak to the detectives, his presence disarmed them. He was a clean-cut, good old military boy. He was respectful and polite, following up every answer with a yes sir or no sir. Before I continue with the psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Normally, police may have been able to catch David in a lie by meticulously cross-referencing his story with the available evidence. In her article from the American Psychological Association entitled Deception Detection, Laura Zimmerman, PhD, said, Research shows being strategic about revealing evidence to suspects increases deception detection accuracy rates. Withholding evidence until late in the interview leaves room for guilty suspects to blatantly lie. But investigators couldn't delay revealing their evidence because they simply had none available. David just had to keep quiet and stick to a story. After a brief interview, the detectives essentially crossed him off their list of potential suspects. He was a model student whose relationship to AJ was a complete secret. Besides, authorities believed they'd found a more legitimate suspect to pursue. During questioning, several Mansfield High students mentioned a troubled teen who lived in a trailer park just outside of town. The girl already had a police record, but more importantly, she'd recently exchanged fighting words with AJ. To protect her identity, we'll call the girl Tanya. In 1994, Tanya caught wind that her boyfriend cheated on her with Kristen Clark, one of AJ's best friends. According to a police report, Tanya beat Clark with a baseball bat, broke her nose, and gave her a concussion. Clark needed 45 stitches to close the gash at the base of her skull. But Tanya's rampage didn't end there. She moved on to find and shoot her boyfriend too, seriously injuring him. The victims filed restraining orders against Tanya and she was banned from school. When the trial came, AJ testified on behalf of her girlfriend. Apparently, after her day in court, Tanya said to AJ, quote, I'll get you for this. It didn't look good for Tanya. Several students believed without a shadow of a doubt that Tanya was responsible for AJ's death. She was clearly willing and able to attack someone like AJ. Her attitude only made her more suspicious. In contrast to the polite, soft-spoken David, 
Tanya was crusty, blunt, and ill-tempered. More importantly, she was the only real lead investigators had at the time. Dallas police questioned Tanya and her ex-boyfriend extensively, but they soon realized they'd hit another snag. Tanya's alibi for the night in question checked out, and she passed her polygraph test with flying colors. With Tanya officially cleared, there was no prime suspect. AJ's dad, Bill Jones, was also questioned and given a lie detector test. He passed. Her mom, Linda, told the authorities she suspected AJ's boyfriend, Tracy Smith. After speaking with AJ on the night of December 3rd, he never tried to make contact with the Joneses or offer his sympathies. Linda found that suspicious. But Tracy passed his polygraph too. He did, however, offer investigators a new lead. He claimed AJ had a stalker, a boy named Brian McMillan. Coming up, AJ's killers finally slip up. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight, all are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. After the shocking murder of A.J. Jones, 18-year-old killers David Graham and Diane Zamora seemed to get away clean. Mansfield's head investigative team questioned suspect after suspect, but every trail they followed seemed to lead them further from the true culprits. While Graham and Zamora avoided suspicion, another teenager fell prey to cruel high school gossip. AJ's boyfriend, Tracy Smith, said he was interrupted while calling AJ on the night of her disappearance. He knew whoever she spoke with while he waited could be the key to unlocking the mystery. Before AJ clicked back over to Tracy, she told her mother a David from cross country had called, but she told Tracy a different guy named Brian rang her up. She said Brian was depressed and had asked her to meet up later that evening to chat. According to Tracy, she never mentioned anyone named David. Investigators Clay, Meyer, and Geary seized the lead. They soon discovered a 17-year-old boy named Brian McMillan was employed near a Subway sandwich shop where AJ used to work. AJ was kind to Brian. She felt sorry for him because he seemed a little awkward. But as time went on, their relationship took a creepy turn. Brian grew fascinated with AJ, and she felt suffocated by his frequent visits. 
When her mom heard Tracy pointed to Brian as a potential suspect, she thought they'd finally found the final piece of the puzzle. She stated, quote, He began to bother AJ so much at work that when she saw him coming, she started ducking her head behind the counter. Detectives dug into Brian's background and discovered he relied on four different prescriptions to fight his clinical depression. He seemed innocent enough, but the forensic team decided to bring him in for questioning anyway. Initially, Brian said he never knew AJ. In time, however, he confessed to more than that. He even conceded that he might have spoken with AJ on the night of her tragic demise. On that early December evening, Brian had gotten drunk alone. Before that, he hadn't touched the bottle in over six months, but he was lonely. All of his friends had girlfriends and he had no one. As Brian spoke, Clay, Meyer, and Geary hastily filled in the rest of the story. Brian was sad. He couldn't land the gorgeous track star. In a moment of heightened frustration, he might have tried to get her to meet him in the middle of the night. Then he may have lost his temper. To investigators, the plot seemed likely enough. When they asked Brian if he'd been at AJ's house on December 3rd, he admitted it was possible. He had no recollection at all from that night because he'd drunk himself into a blackout. The detectives pushed harder. They asked Brian if he took AJ out late that night. He said he was so drunk he didn't remember anything. That was all investigators needed to hear. Fairly convinced they'd found their man, the authorities released Brian and secured a search warrant to raid his home. On December 15, 1995, armed officers stormed the house. Brian was ripped from his bed and arrested for murder. The following day, his story made headlines. That's when his friend stepped up and went to bat to defend him. According to those who knew Brian, he was gentle as a lamb. He may have been lost and awkward, but he'd never exhibited violent tendencies. Nobody could believe he was capable of murder. On top of that, Brian's dad swore his boy never left the house the night of December 3rd. Still, Brian spent Christmas in a jail cell. When the district attorney had him take a lie detector test, he aced it. Authorities were forced to release him from custody. New Year's Day 1996 came and went, but detectives made no progress to speak of. After all that time, they were back at square one without a single promising suspect. Investigators combed over their records. They went over every available detail in the case to no avail. Apparently, it never dawned on the authorities that AJ could have lied to Tracy about Brian calling her. They assumed she was more likely to have lied to her mother about speaking to David Graham, but they were wrong, and the oversight cost them valuable time. They weren't the only ones fooled, however. David's classmates either revered his scholastic record or swooned when he passed them in the halls. He was an admirable young man, and to many, he set an excellent example. One acquaintance remarked, quote, 
His life was so unblemished that he didn't so much as throw a spitwad in school. His fiancée, Diane, was similarly above suspicion. She started studying every morning by 6 a.m. She excelled in her extracurricular activities and held an after-school job. To her neighbors, she was a sweet and naive kid who listened to Christian music. She didn't seem dangerous. Diane and David had known one another for nearly four years, but they'd only been a couple for about one month. Diane wore her engagement ring proudly, and David had no regrets about pawning his prized hunting rifle collection to pay for it. They really seemed like the perfect high school sweethearts. Only one person in the world knew a dark secret lay beneath the facades, David's best pal, Jay Green. The night of AJ's murder, David and Diane called on Jay for help. They snuck through his bedroom window, discarded their bloody clothes, and begged him not to ask any questions. David's friend honored the couple's request, despite how disturbing it was to see his friend shaking and covered in blood. He never reported the incident to the authorities. So even though investigators knocked on their neighbor's doors asking for every bit of intel, David and Diane went on living their lives. Publicly, David and Diane acted as if they'd never even talked about killing someone, let alone done it. They studied together and held hands. David showered her with gifts, including a leather jacket for Christmas and a cuddly little teddy bear for Valentine's Day. Before they knew it, they'd made it to their high school graduations and beyond. By the summer of 1996, David had been accepted to the Air Force Academy near Colorado Springs. Meanwhile, Diane was admitted to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Just as the killers embarked on the next chapters of their lives, Mansfield detectives put AJ's case on the back burner. They'd conducted over 300 interviews and had no conclusive leads. It had been over six months and other cases were starting to take precedence. David and Diane were thrilled. The summer before their first semesters of college, the two attended separate, grueling boot camps to get acclimated to military life. David thrived in his basic training, but Diane's emails to him suggested she was struggling in Annapolis. She had a hard time keeping up with her fellow cadets. She sought relief at the Naval Chapel, but praying wasn't enough to quell her anxieties. So she looked elsewhere for comfort. Diane's squad leader was named Jay Guild. He was a handsome recruit from Chicago. He spent extra time with Diane since she wasn't physically up to par. All in all, he was an excellent mentor to her. She trusted him implicitly. At first, she told Jay she missed her fiance, but as they spent more and more time together, she started to open up. Diane cried to Jay for hours when David ignored her emails. She threw massive temper tantrums when David forgot to call her. She just couldn't handle being away from him. Since AJ's death, they'd been inseparable. When they were apart, Diane just didn't trust her man. He was a killer after all. Finally, Diane pulled Jay aside and told him she thought David was cheating on her 
with someone at the Air Force Academy. Jay was left in an awkward spot. The longer Diane and David spent apart, the more she grew tortured by jealousy. She wanted to make him feel that kind of pain too. So in July, she stopped sending him emails. She hoped her sudden silence would cause David to call. When it didn't, she told Jay she was going to end things once and for all. She even went so far as to come on to Jay. He didn't accept her advances, but that didn't stop Diane from emailing David to say Jay kissed her. That finally caught David's attention. When he read about the fictional kiss, he reported Jay to the school's administrators. He claimed Jay was forcing his fiance to endure unwanted sexual advances. When the school did nothing, David went after Jay directly. Via email, he warned Jay to stay away from his girl. He also wrote letters to Diane in which he pleaded with her not to stray from him. He ended each letter with the ominous words, remember what binds us together. It was a toxic relationship strained to its breaking point. Though they once found comfort together, their dark secret was tearing them apart. In her book, The Psychology of Secrets, professor of psychology at the University of Notre Dame, Anita E. Kelly said, quote, Secrecy can be experienced as burdensome and stressful. Keeping secrets requires expending cognitive and emotional resources. Keeping secrets about having committed a murder presumably would be more effortful and stressful, and thus more harmful than keeping secrets about having smoked marijuana. The stress was clearly getting to Diane. She continued to feed Jay lies about David's infidelity in Colorado. Eventually, Jay asked her if David had ever cheated on her in the past. She confessed that he had during their senior year. Jay asked what she did when she found out. Diane said she demanded David kill the other girl. Jay was floored. Clearly, he didn't know what to think and didn't want to hear any more. But once she opened up about the events of December 3rd, 1995, Diane couldn't stop. She described the murder in graphic detail and told Jay she watched David shoot and kill AJ. In her version of the story, she was adamant that she did nothing to directly participate in the violence. Still, she did confess that she'd ordered David to do it for her. The Naval Academy enforced a firm code of honor known as the Brigade of Midshipman Honor Concept. The moral guide stated that if a cadet discovered a peer had lied, cheated, or broken the law, they had a duty to report the offense. But Jay said nothing at all. Either he didn't fully believe Diane, or he was too afraid to get on her bad side. When the summer of 1996 ended, David and Diane threw themselves into their freshman years with full force. Again, David seemed to excel, even socially. But Diane had a hard time making genuine connections. Eventually, perhaps in a bizarre effort to make new friends, Diane shared her dark story once more. 
On August 28th, her doormates, Mandy Gotch and Jennifer McCurney, joined Diane late one night for a few drinks and some serious gossip. Diane gushed about David, and Mandy said the two seemed to love each other a lot. Jennifer chimed in by saying it seemed like the pair would do anything for each other. Diane said there was no line they wouldn't cross. They'd even killed to protect their love. The girl's eyes widened in disbelief. So Diane spilled everything. She freely told them exactly how she helped kill a 15-year-old girl. The following day, Mandy and Jennifer did the only sensible thing. They sought out the Navy chaplain. When they shared the conversation, he immediately called in the Naval Academy's attorney. The lawyer jumped on the phone and dialed up the Dallas police. He wanted to know if the story was real. He needed to know if they were investigating the murder of a teenage girl named AJ. Coming up, David and Diane confess. Now, back to the story. On August 30th, 1996, Mansfield, Texas detectives flew to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. After almost a full year of searching for 15-year-old Adrian Jones's killers, they finally had a worthwhile lead. On August 28, 1996, 19-year-old Diane Zamora confessed to her Naval Academy roommates that she and her fiancé David killed for love. After almost a year of keeping the secret, she shared the story in gruesome detail with her roommates. Professor of psychology, Dr. Anita E. Kelly, offered a theory behind Diane's late-night confession. She said, quote, Zamora may have revealed her secret to her friends because she feared that any relationships that she could develop with them would be impaired by her own knowledge of the secret and awareness of the possibility that they could later discover it. Now, anyone who gets to know and like Zamora does so with the knowledge of the murder. Even though it should be harder to get people to like her, at least when they do, she can trust that such liking will not be destroyed by a future revelation. Regardless of the reasons Diane confessed, her doormates weren't willing to keep that kind of secret. The next morning on August 30th, Mansfield investigators were on their way to Annapolis. Once they reached the campus, the authorities headed straight to the gymnasium. The academy was hosting its first pep rally of the football season. Diane was mingling with her fellow students when detectives Clay, Meyer, and Geary appeared out of nowhere. They snatched her from the bleachers amid cadet cheers and drum rolls. Then they escorted her across the campus through a seemingly endless hallway and into a small private room where Navy officials joined them. Terrified out of her mind, Diane admitted to nothing at first. When asked why she told her roommate she was a killer, she said she felt self-conscious around them. She wanted to make herself look impressive. It was a weak excuse, but the authorities had no evidence they could use to press her. Since the officers couldn't detain her, the school opted to suspend her. They asked her to return to Texas until her name was cleared. 
Diane, was given a one-way airline ticket to Dallas, but she changed the ticket. When she stopped over in Atlanta to meet a connecting flight, she switched her destination to Colorado Springs. She had to warn David. When Diane landed, she went straight to her fiance's dormitory and snuck past the front desk. She pounded on David's door, taking care to make sure nobody saw her enter. When he finally answered, he was surprised and confused. Once she explained why she was there, David was even less welcoming. He warned her to stay away from him for the time being. He said he loved her, but he knew investigators were tracking her moves. He needed her to be discreet, but it was already too late. The detectives had followed Diane to Colorado. Within hours, they came knocking on David's door too. At first, David played it cool as usual. He claimed Diane was lying, but he had no idea why she would do such a thing. It was another flimsy denial, and this time, investigators were prepared. The officers told David they'd had a chance to meet up with one of his best friends, Jay Green. Jay had told them all about the night David and Diane snuck through his bedroom window, covered in blood. He described the couple as distraught. That was December 3rd, 1995, the exact night of AJ's disappearance. David knew he was caught. All of the hiding, the countless lies and secrets had finally caught up with him. When authorities offered the cadet a typewriter, David typed up a five-page confession. The result was wordy and melodramatic. One of the forensic psychologists later assigned to David's case said it would have put romance novelist Danielle Steele to shame. The couple's fates were all but sealed. Using the confession as a jumping off point, police were able to gather significant evidence against the couple. They finally managed to recover the gun David used to shoot AJ and picked up a few free weights from David's attic. These served as key evidence since David claimed Diane beat AJ with his dumbbell before he shot her. On September 6, 1996, Diane and David were arrested and placed in solitary confinement in separate cells. In jail, the couple clung even more tightly to one another than before. Later that month, Diane wrote to David that she prayed God would give them another chance at life. She said she believed she and David were not bad people. They were just, quote, young, in love, and not thinking straight. But there was no way to know whether the jury would see things that way. Diane's trial began two years later in February of 1998. Some of the forensic experts who testified felt her motive had been the driving force behind the murder. Diane had pushed David towards violence. Since David's mother had abandoned the home and his father was distracted, Diane had the most control over his decisions. In his closing arguments, the lead prosecutor repeated what a forensic psychologist had said of Diane. She's a sociopath. She had absolutely no reaction. Grown men were crying in this courtroom when they were talking about Adrian, 
and she sat there, stone-faced. But other investigators felt it was David who motivated Diane to participate in the crime. After all, he owned the guns. And according to his mother, he had an unhealthy violent streak. Plus, he'd convinced Diane to give up her virginity and then immediately betrayed her. In her trial, Diane contradicted the testimony of her college roommates. She stated David was dominating and controlling. She said he was, quote, cruel and abusive, sometimes brandishing a gun as he forced her to have sex. Diane's voice shook as she insisted she only meant to question AJ on the night of her death. She claimed David shot AJ twice in the head before she could do anything. She even went so far as to say David taunted her, saying, look what you made me do. Her new story was in complete opposition to her prior confession, but it was too late to take her original words back. Though she lied about her involvement to her friends, the couple shared responsibility for the murder. For all intents and purposes, they were equal partners in crime. Diane Zamora was found guilty of capital murder. She was sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole. AJ's parents insisted, though they were devastated, that the court not consider the death penalty. Linda Jones, AJ's mother, said it was unimaginably difficult to lose a child, but to see two other children die would be pointless. David Graham was also found guilty. He too was punished with a life sentence. Diane was moved to a state prison diagnostic unit in Gatesville, Texas, where she split up with David via letter. When he reportedly sent her a Christmas card in 2001, she ignored it. In June 2003, she married another inmate from the Texas penitentiary. By 2018, 41-year-old Diane had divorced her new husband. To this day, she insists she's no killer. In an interview with People Magazine, she said, I'm not some witch. I'm not some evil-hearted person. Not even close. David, on the other hand, has been more remorseful. He was held in Huntsville after his trial. In prison, he pursued a bachelor's degree in criminology. He has expressed a sincere regret for killing AJ and said if he could get a do-over of the trial, he'd have pleaded guilty from the start. He said he would never tell the people who loved Adrian that he and Diane didn't deserve life in prison. As of 2018, he was being held in Wichita Falls and was studying to become a pastor. In total, both David and Diane have spent nearly two decades behind bars. They are both set to remain in prison until they become eligible for parole in 2036. AJ's family never recovered from the loss of their daughter. For years, her parents left their daughter's bedside lamp on at night, like a tiny beacon glowing to guide her back home. To this day, AJ's classmates often drive by her old house. They slow their cars just long enough to peek in the window for a glimpse of her cross-country trophies, books, and posters. Her mother has said she hopes that everyone remembers AJ for her integrity. She believes her daughter still graces her home, 
and watches over her family with those beautiful, joyful eyes. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on David Graham and Diane Zamora, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Psychology of Secrets by Anita E. Kelly and Blind Love, the true story of the Texas cadet murder by Peter Meyer, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronick. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by John Levinson. With writing assistance by Terrell Wells. Fact-checking by Haley Milligan. And research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, Each week, we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.